Good morning, Village Church. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. Pleased to uh, open God's Word with you. Christmas is uh, one of my favorite times of the year, for sure. Anybody else feel that way? Um, So I'm going to be doing the scripture reading for us this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah 9, uh, chapters, or verses 2 through, I forget where it ends. Um, So I don't have it here. So I'm going to squint and read. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken the day as on the day of May. Nope, I uh, can't read that. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. (laughs) Much better. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Thank you. No, I'm good. (laughs) So if you were with us last week, you know that we're in our Advent series and we're looking at Isaiah 9 and we're focusing on this series of titles is given for the Messianic King, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you missed Pastor David's sermon last week, I highly suggest you go back and listen to it. Uh, He talked about Jesus as the Wonderful Counselor, and he also set the stage. He talked about the context of this passage, how Isaiah is prophesying in a time of political and social upheaval. And in chapter 9, you get this promise of a righteous powerful king that will come and rule over God's people. He is going to make things right. So verse six says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This morning we're focusing on the second title, Mighty God. And you might wonder why this messianic king who's gonna be born from the line of David is called Mighty God. How would that have landed with the original audience of Jews? They're they're monotheists, right? Well, commentators are split on how this would have been understood by the original audience. Some see this as describing a human king who would rule over Israel with a strength and might that would be superhuman because it would be empowered by God and God's divine power would work through him. And we have a near-term fulfillment of that with the good king Hezekiah that's to come. But other commentators reject the idea that the title Mighty God has that sort of hyperbolic or symbolic meaning 
because that phrase always refers to divinity itself. I think it's probably a bit of both. The original audience would have understood this as applying to this earthly king, this human king to come, and God's power working through him. But they should have been left with a sense that there's something more to this passage because of the title that's given him. Well, with the benefit of the full testimony of Scripture, the fuller meaning of this passage is clear to us. Almighty God ultimately was intended to point to the divinity of Jesus, the one who proved himself to be this promised Messiah. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus reveals the fuller picture. Jesus the Messiah was the mighty God. But as we consider what this passage means and the implications for us, I want to start at the foundation. What does it mean to say that God is mighty? We're going to run through a lot of scripture this morning to see what the Bible says about that. If you have speed fingers, you can look in your own Bibles. We'll, otherwise, we'll have it up on the screen. One of the primary ways God is praised in scripture is through the praise of his great power and his might. Psalm 89 says, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Second Chronicles 20 says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. First Chronicles 29 says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Deuteronomy 10 says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. God is omnipotent, we say. He is all powerful. That means he is not only above all, but he has all power over all things at all times. All power rests in his hand alone. And that's supposed to leave us in awe, as scripture also reveals. Genesis 18 says, is anything too hard for the Lord? The same idea in Jeremiah 32. Behold, I am the Lord, God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Job 26 says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Isaiah 40 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, that last passage is another common biblical theme. By pointing to God's power and his might, specifically in the act of creation. Think about it. We are creatures, are we not? What better way for us to understand God and his power and his might than as our creator? We owe our very existence to him. In the very first lines of scripture, we see God's incomprehensible power in creation. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke light into existence. There was no light. And he said, let there be light. And light was. We have no categories for understanding this, really. If we create something, we create it out of something that already exists. Something exists, we put it together into something else. God alone can speak something into existence. He can will something into existence out of nothing at all. And so scripture marvels in this creative power of God. Jeremiah 10 says, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Psalm 147 says, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Jeremiah 32 says, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Unless we are tempted to skim over this, which I think we are as modern people, Paul reminds us in Romans that God intends this to be a very big deal for us. He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. God's power specifically is displayed in his creation. So not coincidentally, when the New Testament authors pick up the theme of Jesus as the mighty God, the divinity of Jesus, they point to his role as the creator. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1 says, speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him, through him and for him. Hebrews 1 says, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The mighty God, the same mighty God who showed his incomprehensible power in creation, that mighty God is Jesus Christ himself. Not only did Jesus create everything, but Jesus holds everything together even as we speak. You exist right now because Jesus wants you to exist. And yet, in the advent of Christ, when Jesus, as it were, arrives on the scene as the messianic king, the mighty God arrives in a surprising way. He arrives with humility as a baby boy born like any other man. Look with me at Philippians chapter two. And Paul writes, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The humility that Christ showed in the advent is beyond our comprehension. It says that Jesus was in the form of God and had equality with God. In other words, Jesus is the mighty God. But the mighty God, Jesus, put aside the privileges of his position and took on the form of a servant, stepping into his own creation and becoming one of us, born as one of the people he created in his own image. Because Jesus fully took on human nature and was fully a man, he was even born like one of us. He arrives as a weak, helpless baby, totally dependent on his mother, his father for everything, even his own survival. A couple times I've seen in a movie or a show where uh, they leave a baby out in the wilderness to die, purposely exposed. And it's a really striking scene. The baby's just lying there on the ground, crying, nobody's there to pick it up. Nobody's there to feed her, comfort her. I find it really hard to watch, and I think that's the point that they, the directors use, is meant to just grab us. The mighty God came to us with that level of dependence, that level of humility. But Jesus' arrival was just the prelude. In the ultimate act of humility, he went to the cross. Look at Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, mighty God, accomplished his plan to save fallen sinful mankind by willingly going to a humiliating death on a Roman cross. The people mocked Jesus the leaders mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on his head as if to drive home the point with pain. You're no king. You have no authority. You have no power. Even as he hung on the cross, Jesus was mocked as king of the Jews. But how did Jesus respond? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They know not that they mock the mighty God himself. They know not that they mock the mighty God who at that moment is taking God's holy, righteous punishment for sin on himself. And Jesus' humility held true to the end, to his actual death. The creator of all murdered by the ones he created. But praise God, that is not the end of the story, amen? Amen? Amen. In humility, Jesus had put aside the glory of his might and his power, but
But God is still all-powerful. His might and power would be displayed again in raising Jesus from the dead. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays for the church saying, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in, G in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Likewise, in Philippians 2, Paul's main argument is that the church should have the mind of Christ in showing humility, but he also wants them to know that through his resurrection and his exaltation, Jesus is now glorious in his might and his power. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and all under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice what ultimately will happen. There will be no mocking of Jesus, the mighty God. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every person you know ultimately will bow the knee to Jesus. The only question is, will they bow as, his, as their savior? Will they bow as their judge? In the book of Revelation, we get a picture of what Jesus will be like when he comes again. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There was a time for the humility of Christ to be front and center, to be on display. And that is what we celebrate in this season. And there will be a time when the power and the might of Christ will be undeniable. So how should we react to this idea of Jesus as mighty God? I see two main ways. The first is with godly fear. The Bible makes it clear that those who stand against God those who rebel against his authority, they should fear God's power. Exodus 15 says, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Psalm 66 says, God rules his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Job 9 says, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself 
against him and succeeded. No one has. Jesus himself said, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both bot, soul, and body in hell. Who can do that? Only the mighty God can do that. Jesus says, fear him. As we just saw in Revelation 19, Jesus himself will be fearsome when he comes again in judgment. His eyes are like fire. From his mouth comes a sword with which he strikes down his enemies. He comes to rule and with furious wrath. He is the king of all pretend kings. He is the Lord of all pretend lords. Some of us might need to hear that Jesus is mighty God this morning and respond with reverent fear. But there's another important way to respond to Jesus as mighty God, and that's with joy and with trust. Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Who should we be afraid of if the mighty God is on our side? Isaiah 40 says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God's strength and power leads God's people to trust him. It gives them security in place of fear. It renews their strength when they're weak. I imagine there are a lot of us here this morning who need to be reminded that we can trust the mighty God. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing you face is too hard for him. Ultimately, though, as Christians, we have joy and hope in knowing that God's power is at work in us through his Holy Spirit living in us. Remember Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, that the believers would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. In chapter 3 of the same letter, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God's power at work in us is the sole basis, is the sole ground for us to live in obedience to God. It's our only hope for living a godly life. It's our only hope for turning away from sin. Second Peter 1 says, His divine power, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
We actually partake of God's divine power to live a godly life and to turn away from our sinful desires. That's why when Paul exhorts the believers in Ephesians 6 to take up the armor of God, he grounds it all in the power and the might of God. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. If your story has been one of weakness and defeat lately, I tell you, be strong in God's strength and his power. That's how we obey. That's how we resist temptation. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. But the power and might of Jesus is not just for us. There's immeasurable power and might in the simple message of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. The gospel of Jesus is the power of God to save. In Romans 1, Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we cre preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When you go out from here and you share the gospel to your family, your friends, strangers, you wield God's power. His power is at work through the message of Jesus. And that brings us to our good news statement for this morning. Jesus is the mighty God, and through faith in him, his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection and power, we can be saved from our sins. And we have his immeasurable power working through us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. We praise you, we praise him as the mighty God. We acknowledge that he came for us to be one of us and that you displayed your power and your might and your greatness in that whole plan, including when Jesus went to the cross and died and when you raised him from the dead so that we can trust in him and be reconciled to you. We also confess that Jesus is coming again in great power and might. We look forward to that day. We pray that you would help us. Help us to not think too little of you, not think too little of Christ, even in this season when we focus on his humility. 
we know that Jesus is the mighty God. And he's the mighty God who has the power to save. He is the mighty God who has the power to turn us from sin, to turn us toward you and walk in obedience. We ask that you would help us do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.